Um, yeah, nice to see some familiar faces and some new faces. Um, so I thought our agenda today, we'll do a little meditation, kind of in the title of the place, <laughs> Spirit Rock Meditation Center. Uh, and then uh, I'm going to try something different, and, I, I'm, and I'm also going to take a risk in telling you now, uh, which is that I always have things I can talk about. I usually talk about the things that are on my mind. But today I would like to talk about things that are on your mind. And so I'm planting a seed that when we're done meditating, I'm just going to invite topics of conversation or questions from all of you all. And we'll see kind of where that goes. Uh, and I said I was taking a risk because I don't want you to spend the whole time in the meditation thinking about that. Just let that seed percolate in the back of your consciousness so um, something will ripen in the next half hour or so. Okay, so finding some way to be at ease as you're seated now. What kind of adjustments that you need to make? Adjustments to your posture, adjustments to how the weight is distributed in your seat. And beginning by, you can soften the eyes, close the eyes. And then beginning by feeling the weight of the feet, whether they're rested on the floor folded beneath you. It's receiving the tactile sensations of pressure, temperature, maybe some pulsing or vibration. And recognizing that you're always supported by the earth. And feeling the weight of your body in your seat. And letting go of any extra effort. Softening any muscles that you don't need to stay upright. Letting the shoulders move downward and backward, even a fraction of an inch. And as the shoulders move down and backward, you might feel a lengthening of the neck. And slightly tuck the chin to further elongate the neck and then Maybe imagining that the head is supported by gossamer threads all the way to the heavens. And letting the awareness rest in the body, feeling the body from a body, from within the body. 
Noticing what sensations are most prominent. Maybe there's some sense that some sensations are pleasant, some are unpleasant, some are neither. And seeing if you can get some sense of the attitude of the mind, the mood of the mind. How you're meeting this moment, the mind distracted, the mind steady. Is the mind filled with wanting or longing? Is there some irritation or agitation in the mind? Well, maybe the mind is just okay. And then noticing if there's a problem to be solved. Something lacking or something in excess. Too much energy in the system or too little energy in the system. Or some questioning or vacillation uncertainty. Those moments where there's no problem to solve, we can savor the kind of freedom. Everything's okay, just as it is. And when there's a problem to solve, we can soften. Relax the fixing mind that's looking for a solution. And for these moments of practice, just resting with how things are, allowing things to be as they are. And now noticing that the body is breathing. And connecting with the visceral felt sense of this breathing body. Feeling the expansion and contraction of the belly. Feeling the rise and fall of the chest. Perhaps feeling air at the upper lip or nostrils.
I'm connecting with the feeling of the breath moving through the body, wherever it's most available. And as you connect with the feeling of the breath, there can be a sense that everything else just fades into the background. Or thinking is happening, hearing is happening, some peripheral awareness of what's happening in your environment, the kind of sense of not getting engaged with any of that and just letting the intention rest on this ever-changing flow of sensations. Everything else fades into the background, and then we can further simplify. So that it's just breathing in, knowing, experiencing, feeling the in-breath, and breathing out, knowing, experiencing, feeling the out-breath. Just that. And anytime you notice that the mind is engaged in something other than knowing, experiencing, feeling that perhaps it's not a problem, just beginning again. Connecting with the felt sense, the body breathing. I'm allowing the feeling of the breath to become more nuanced, more precise. 
You might notice without judgment whether the breath is coarse or fine. You might notice if the breath is shallow and deep. Whether the breath is shallow or deep, letting the breath be just as it is. Knowing the deep breath, knowing the shallow breath. And perhaps noticing the rhythm of the breath. Or maybe the breath is irregular. Maybe noticing more subtle manifestations of the breath. Maybe some movement in the shoulders. Maybe some movement in the back of the body. Maybe connecting with some even more subtle energetic of breathing. Could be some sense of enlivening on the inhale. Could be a sense of relaxing settling on the exhale. You might notice and highlight the difference in the feeling of inhale versus the feeling of exhale.
And maybe even noticing differences within the cycle of inhaling and the cycle of exhaling. Are there places in the cycle where the breath feels pleasant or unpleasant? Kind of neutral in between. Breathing in, knowing, feeling, experiencing the in-breath. Breathing out, knowing, experiencing, feeling the out-breath.
knowing, experiencing, feeling, in-breath, out-breath. Nothing else to do, nowhere to go. Nothing you've got to get or get rid of. And no one you have to be. And just to be alive is enough. Just to be alive is enough and we can connect with the aliveness of this body through the very breath that keeps us alive.
Breathing in, knowing the in-breath. Breathing out, knowing the out-breath. And letting go of any idea of meditation, any concept of a doing, softening, resting, knowing the in-breath, knowing the out-breath. If you wish, we can end this period of practice with a gratitude reflection, bringing to mind someone or something for which you have a sense of gratitude. Visualizing this person or this thing, situation that you're grateful for. And then connecting with the feeling of gratitude as a felt sense in the body. Where is gratitude located in the body? What's the flavor of gratitude? the energetic quality of experience of gratitude. Savoring the goodness of the feeling of gratitude, balancing the mind, kind of inner nourishment, Thank you for your practice. So, um, in case you joined a little later at the beginning of the meditation, I said that uh, I would love to hear uh, from all of you any 
questions or topics. Uh, I usually come in here with my own agenda, and I thought, and I could certainly do that, but I thought it might be nice to just hear what's on folks' minds so you can unmute yourself and speak into the space, or if you prefer, you can chat. Letting go, okay. And in some ways, I guess that forgiveness, okay. Being with this, let me just make sure I got all these. Uh, letting go, forgiveness, being with discomfort, the hypervigilant mind that needs to make sure everything is okay. So the hypervigilant mind that needs to make sure everything is okay. Um, some of this is a habit of the mind that we develop based on the cause and conditions of our life. Uh, especially those of us who are BIPOC folks and different from the kind of majority population, you know, many of us have this habit of mind because it was important. It served us at some point in our life and maybe still does. Um, <clears throat> some of us, it's been a matter of physical safety, like just knowing where it's safe to be, you know, where this body will be safe and protected. Um, for others of us, there's more of a a dynamic of like, something I've noticed about myself. I've had a tremendous amount of privilege. I've very rarely feared for my physical safety, but the hypervigilance is driven by a kind of like uh, wanting to fit in. And in order to fill, fit in, I have to be acutely aware of the structure of like who has power in the space, who's running the show, who are the people whispering in that person's ear? So um, the first thing I would say is that, you know, in some ways, this hypervigilant mind. Oh, let me say one more thing, which is that, you know, part of this, a part of this is a learned habit. We go through our life. We see the usefulness of being vigilant to keep ourselves safe and protected, to find a sense of belonging or how we fit in. And then, uh, another part of this is is um, human neurology. And when we were um, roaming the roaming the plains of Africa, uh, we needed to have a neurology that could quickly detect dangers in the environment, predators, unsafe things. Um, it actually kept us alive, this kind of vigilance, this scanning the horizon, making sure everything's safe. And uh, even though most of us aren't fearful of lions or whatever predators they had, uh, our ancestors had, you know, the, the neurology is the same. And that neurology is interesting because it's not only very adept at uh, processing, it's, it's, it, it's more adept at processing information that is relates to danger, safety, things that are kind of stressful, actually takes more effort 
and energy and mental bandwidth to appreciate that which is good. And so this is something like to be aware of when, you know, we have varying degrees of this, but somehow we're as humans, we're just built to have this kind of almost anxiety about our personal safety. It's a survival instinct. So, um, And many times the uh, sense of hypervigilance is connected to the inner critic, that part of us that uh, might be a different kind of vigilance. You know, we're constantly watching how we're doing and what we're doing and how we're being received and processing that feedback in a kind of loop of... uh, an inner critic that, you know, we just say critic. Sometimes I find I do have an inner cheerleader. <laughs> it's kind of like uh, patting me on the back when I'm doing well or giving me words of encouragement. You know, the, the inner critic becomes critical because there's like an ill will in it or the kind of aversion in it, the energy of aversion and ill will unpleasant to receive creates an unpleasant mind state but again it's a learned habit of being habit of thinking sometimes we get this from the people our caregivers in our environment who might be quite critical Um, sometimes we get it because we have an achievement mentality that we we want to do well and and maybe we think that the way to do that is like a stern coach who gives you like the tough truths that help you in that endeavor. Uh, Mostly uh, the self critic is diluted. Mostly, at least my self critic, if I examine it, mostly it's diluted. It's in a, it's in a, uh, it's in a paradigm in which it, it, it's, it's trying to help you that part of yourself. It's trying to help you, but it's like a misguided, like a misguided coach, the, where the words are harsh rather than supportive. And um, actually, a lot of psychological research that shows that the what's harsh catches our attention, but what's uh, supportive is actually what leads to transformation. So the the overlap between hypervigilance and the self-critic is that they are um, normal, natural, product of causes and conditions. And um, what we really need to pay attention to or bring into mindfulness is how we're reacting to those conditions. Primarily, when there's a lot of hypervigilance, there's also restlessness and anxiety, so it's very unpleasant. So our feeling is, this is no good, don't want this, this should go away. Uh, same with the inner critic. The inner critic can be sort of like real, that relentless kind of voice that's, you know, whatever it's saying to you is generally unpleasant, so I want it to go away. And part of the uh, 
the suffering and the experience of hypervigilance or allowed self inner critic is that struggle to make it go away. And what the practice invites is um, a deepening in- intimacy with those experiences. So we really know the feeling of hypervigilance, how the mind is operating in that, uh, when those conditions are present, how it's manifesting in the body, where the places of activation, the places of constriction, the places of contraction, The kind of we can kind of deconstruct the experience to see that there's a thought, there's a paradigm. One thought paradigm might be I shouldn't be hyperreactive. We can notice that there's thought, there's a belief, and we can notice there's the uh, emotional energy associated with experience of hypervigilance, which is. Usually, some sense of activation, energy moving in the body, butterflies in the stomach, however that manifests for yourself. And then taking it even a level further, like the what's happening at the level of sensation, vibration, pulsation, tingling, energy. And in this deconstruction of experience, we can see that actually quite tolerable to be with pulsation, vibration, the whirling energy in the body. Uh, And so that's a skillful place to rest the attention. And then there's something in the intelligence of this mind-body system that begins to forge a new relationship with the experience. We're much less in resistance to the experience and it's much less of a problem. And paradoxically, or maybe counterintuitively, that tends to diminish the experience of whether it's the inner critic or the hyper, or hypervigilance. It, some point this is all about letting go that was the first comment letting go that you know in the buddhist seminal teaching the four noble truths the first noble truth there's suffering suffering is to be known and then the second noble truth the the cause of all suffering is clinging or aversion and that clinging and aversion is to be known is to be released what i find interesting uh forgiveness is actually a good place to talk about this what i find interesting is that if there's a sense that we need to forgive um you know the tendency is to look for a practice that will help with forgiveness and you know it's fine there are forgiveness meditations there often they involve phrases visualize a situation that you want where you want to let go and then you have words that encourage that letting go um, sometimes as simple as 
I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive myself. Um, and that, you know, those practices, a lot of people find a lot of uh, uh, juice in those practices and a lot of uh, effectiveness. And also, I think letting go just kind of happens when you practice. The kind of like um, mindfulness gathers data, and then we bring that data into clarity. We begin to see, and it, sometimes it's a level of consciousness, and sometimes it's like on some other level, we begin to see the patterns that are causing suffering and distress. We can see the patterns that are causing happiness and well-being. And then the mind naturally moves in the direction of of happiness and well-being and that sort of resulting letting go that happens. I remember very distinctly the moment that I noticed I didn't have road rage. Uh, and I've not been like a raging road rager, but I live in LA and those times that I do have to drive around, you know, people do crazy things and I get, you know, irritated and, and upset by that. And then one day, it was after I had done a long retreat, I was driving and someone like, you know, crossed over five lanes of traffic and cut me off. And um, sort of the normal reaction of clenched fists and yelling, uh, I just, the thought occurred to me, wow, I hope this person's okay. They're really in a hurry. And I hope, I hope they're okay. It was like a genuine shift in perspective, but the reason I'm sharing that story is it was never on my list of things to let go of. I didn't think like Roger was not particularly a problem that I put it on this list of, you know, like I need to forgive all the terrible drivers in the world or I need to be more, more at ease in my car. Uh, but it emerged after a period of practice. It's just a reorganization that happens in this dharma. You know, the, the Buddha said that mindfulness is... Uh, the direct path for the uh, disappearance of stress and comfort. And I very much have experienced that. Um, in ways that are sometimes counterintuitive, that some of my teachers have explained this by talking about practice as moments of past activity. So moments of path activity, moments of mindfulness, moments where the mind is concentrated and settled, moments of wise speech that's kind and beneficial and pleasant to hear, moments of um, wise action where we're uh, cultivating what's wholesome and forward-leading and abandoning what's, uh, what's not, moments of wise view where we're seeing the true nature of things that uh, all things are fleeting by their nature and impersonal by their nature. These moments of path activity accumulate into a maturation of the path in some ways that are obvious that like the more we practice wise speech, the more our speech will be kind and beneficial, but in ways that are also just mysterious that uh, defy explanation. 
the kind of letting go can happen just through the nature of practice. And, and in fact, in my experience, those kinds of letting goes have been much more durable than the things that I'm trying to let go of by sheer will of force. <laughs> This was a sense of like, I've got to do this. Like, I've got to practice. I've got to forgive. I've got to let go. And and the I in that, the the me, I, I got to do it, is part of the problem. That, that very notion of, you know, is a, is a paradox for me because I believe the Dharma does prescribe a kind of radical responsibility for one's own reactivity uh, that it's ours to work with. But on the other hand, the, the I, I-ing or mining, you know, my resentments, my self-critic, my vigilance, these are um, at the root of the whole problem that we take these energies of nature, it's energies of the body, energies that come from the environment, and we take them to be so personal, like they're mine. When I have a thought, it's definitely my thought. But any of the other things that arise in consciousness that are just like thoughts, a sound arises into consciousness. There's not tendency to claim it as my sound or sight that arises in consciousness to claim it as my sight or my smell. Um, some of that is because of the interiority. It feels like thoughts are coming from the inside. But everything we experience in this life is one of six things arising in awareness the five senses, and thinking. And so from a kind of just like interface point of view, thoughts, the thoughts that I claim as my own, the emotions that I claim as my own, are not really that different from the sound in the environment or the smell in the environment or the sight in the environment, which I don't uh, kind of instinctively claim as my own. The The teaching of not self uh, is actually, I think, one of the most misunderstood teachings. Uh, like you will hear teachers say, uh, there's not a self. And um, I don't know, maybe there isn't, but the Buddha particularly did not take a position on this. And in fact, in one of the suttas where he was asked specifically, is there a self? He refused to answer. And then he was asked, is there a not self? Refused to answer. Um, his cousin and his like chief of staff, Ananda, asked him, why are you refusing to answer? And he said, it just leads to a thicket of use. And kind of the sense was like the philosophical question of whether there's a self or a not self is not useful to liberating the heart and the mind. So where I think this teaching is most useful, actually, is if we were to take the noun self and turn it into a verb uh, and talk about selfing, 
So and this is another thing that has been so fruitful for me to notice, uh, you know, to shed mindfulness on this when it happens to be more aware. And it's that energy that arises where I'm claiming something as mine. Uh, for me, it shows up a lot in wanting to be right as a discussion or an argument. And what is that energy that like, I've got, does it, does it matter? Like what, what is that? <laughs> the desire to be right, the the the, the um, feeling of defending something, like um, this shows up in life all the time, and it's a profound place to bring that to you know that seminal teaching to to see that as a form of suffering, and for that suffering to be known to be. Uh, deconstructed uh, <laughs> a lot of topics I think I have most of them I don't really know how to end other than to say that uh, really in my life I could just go back to that that idea of you know all these things all these different teachings all these different maps uh, moments of path activity moments of you know, it just could be just actually moments of mindfulness. Uh, the, the peril of this world, this human neurology, is that it's so easy to be entranced by endless thinking. And it takes these forms of, you know, the grudges we hold, the resentments we have, the hypervigilant mind, the inner critical mind. And Probably the most important catalyst or or of, uh, the moment that's most important is the moment that you pop that trance and see that thinking is happening. You pop the trance of the inner critic berating you to see, oh, there's an inner critic berating me. <laughs> Or you pop the, the trance of like the grudge or resentment that's kind of simmering and, you know, with grudges and resentments in particular, like there's something that happened that was painful. And so you can't, you're not going to argue your way out of a grudge because probably entitled to uh, feel that uh, distress from whatever happened, but. Shining awareness on the phenomenon that's happening without being caught in the phenomena. Just that, just popping that bubble. Oh, inner critic is speaking. Oh, there's hypervigilance here. With hypervigilance, I might assess first, like, is this helpful? <laughs> Sometimes, yeah, maybe this is helpful. So I can just engage, I can be hypervigilant, but I can do it by choice rather than habit. Um, And really the way to have enough mindfulness to not be constantly lost in the trance of thought. I mean, I, I have this feeling that most of us, even those of us that are on this path of practice, spend most of the time just lost in thought. And so even a moderate 
adjustment of the ratio, you know, like, could we spend 10, 20, 30% of our time popping the bubble of that trance of thought uh, to be able to come into some agency? We're not just falling. Sometimes they say it's like following karma where you're just causes and conditions and you're just kind of rolling with it to that moment of agency that when we notice the critical mind, the hypervigilant mind, the mind that is holding a grudge, we can make a different choice. Just like in that meditation, we steady the mind by just coming back again and again to the breath. We can weaken these habit patterns by identifying them, adjusting, identifying them, adjusting. Uh, and it's the project of a lifetime. <laughs> However old you are, it took you this many years to acquire these habits of mind. It take at least as many to uh, eradicate them. Although you can see, one thing I love about this practice and I love about teaching beginners even is that it doesn't take that much time to begin to see progress in the path. Christian might take a lifetime or lifetimes, but we can see uh, you know, a few weeks, people can see the difference. So uh, I've yammered on for a long time. <laughs> I'd love to invite, open the space for any comments or questions or reflections on anything that's been shared. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.